Good morning, Newtown Road. Welcome to church this morning. Whether you are tuning in on YouTube or on Facebook, we want to say welcome to you. We appreciate your involvement over the past few months. And although this isn't ideal, um, it is something that we've been able to do and God has been able to use to impact lives and to further his church and his mission. And so thank you for tuning in. Can you let us know that you're here by just going to the comments and, and saying here, or even better, filling out a communication card in the link below. That will tell us that you and your family are here. And that's one of the greatest ways we have to get you information that you need about what's happening in and around our ministry. My name is Tyler and I'm the Youth and Families Pastor and I'm really excited for this next announcement. Are you ready? I hope you are, right? Because uh, it's been nice being able to meet online. And for the past few months, the, the engagement has been great and we're doing everything we can and God has allowed us the opportunity to, to serve you in this way, to minister the, God's word to you in this way. But... I want to see your face. We want to see you in person. And next Sunday, June 14th at 10 a.m., we are inviting you to, to join us right here on the lawn in front of the office building at Newtown Road on campus to do a service on the lawn. Now, it's not going to look like a normal service together. We're going to have designated areas on the lawn so that you and your family unit can sit in a social distance style and be able to appreciate and engage with the music and the worship in that way. And if you want, you can drive your vehicle in uh, near the back of the lawn, roll down your windows and hear uh, what's happening that way. And if you aren't quite comfortable yet doing that, we will still have a service streamed on YouTube and Facebook uh, if you would rather stay at home at this time. But we need you to register for that. And so uh, we're going to have a link below and we need you to, to hit that link, register, let us know uh, some basic information and that'll help us as we set the lawn up for you. We can't wait to see you. Please, please come to that, uh, invite others to that, but register for that because we need to know you're here. And we want to say thank you for giving and your faithfulness in giving your tithes and your offerings. Uh, each and every week. Uh, you can continue to do that by going online or going to your app, the Church Center app, and giving that way. And then this bin that's sitting in front of me, that thing has been filled with food and bags uh, that we've been able to distribute to local food pantries. And so thank you for being a good neighbor, for serving in that way, for allowing God to work in and through you over this quarantine period. And we, we pray for you. We love you. We can't wait to see you. Next Sunday, we're going to see many of you uh, right here on the lawn. Until then, have a great week. We love you. Well, good morning, Newtown Road. It is so good to be with you today. Uh, looking forward to seeing many of you next Sunday, June 14th, for our outdoor service. Don't want to miss that. As we do each week, we're going this morning once again to be studying the Bible in just a few minutes. But I wanted to pause before we did that to address some of the, uh, the more seismic events going on in our nation right now. These are indeed challenging days for our country, for our community, for the people of our church family. Our nation is hurting still today, reeling from the effects of the calloused and senseless killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and then also the subsequent violence and rioting around the country. And this tragedy has once again brought into focus the realities of prejudice and racism within our nation in individual forms, in corporate forms, and systemic forms.
And just so we're clear, God condemns each of those expressions because every human, regardless of race or ethnicity, is created in the image of God and the sanctity of their lives demands our dignity, our respect, and our protection. Many, even within our own church family, are hurting at this time too as this event has once again surfaced the pain of racism that they've endured. And because we are one body, Paul tells us that when one of us weeps, we all weep. When one of us is mourning, we're all mourning. Even if we personally haven't experienced the pain of racist thoughts, words, deeds, policies, that does not mean that they don't exist. And it doesn't mean that our loved ones haven't felt them. I personally believe it would be a grave mistake to minimize or dismiss the claims of unfair treatment and injustice or to turn a deaf ear to the cries of help from people of color at this time. So where are we now and, and what are we supposed to do? Well, we're the church. We're going to do what the church does. We stand on the word of God and we labor accordingly. So we stand on the Bible's teaching that all humanity is created in the image of God. And dignity and respect are demanded on that basis alone. Individual dignity, corporate dignity, systemic dignity. And we stand alongside our brothers and sisters of color. We see you. We love you. We're here for you. We support you. And we will be with you in this. It should not be needed to state explicitly, but we obviously don't advocate violence and aggression as a good path forward. It would be wise for us in this moment to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, and we will labor in prayer and we will work together to see the eradication of racism and prejudice in our own hearts, in our communities, in our congregations, and in our nation. May God help us in that endeavor. Let's pray. Oh gracious God, you sit enthroned above heaven and earth. And even though it feels as though the world is giving way beneath us, we are reminded today that you are strong, firmly established. You are steadfast and immovable. Strengthen us today for the work that you've prepared for us. Our Father, you preside over a family that is by your design multicultural and multi-ethnic. Your kingdom is comprised of men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation across the earth. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have not honored and respected the dignity and the sanctity of the humanity of our fellow man. Forgive us for the ways that we've not confronted injustice and racism when we have seen it in ourselves and in our communities. Lord, we ask for your grace to fall upon our nation today, recognizing that it is not deserved, for that is the essence of grace. Bring a spirit of peace to the cities of our country. Bring healing and protection to our communities. Bring wisdom and discernment to our leaders. Lead them, God, to be peacemakers and bridge builders and reformers. Bring protection and safety to those on the front lines of this fight. We pray that you would bring reconciliation, God, to this racial divide and that you would let the church lead the way. We are your body. We are your hands and feet. We are your messengers. 
And although it's overwhelming and confusing, we ask that you would grant us the faith that we need to walk with you through this. And we ask, Father, that you would lead us clearly to be a part of the solution. You have already shown us what is good and what you require of us. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, God. So God, we ask that you would strengthen us for that work. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, we are back this morning in our study in the Gospel of Mark. Now, how many of us have ever seen that great American classic film, The Wizard of Oz? A tremendous feat of cinematography. That movie has captured the hearts of children and adults alike for generations. Fantastical story about Dorothy and her, her little dog Toto, who were caught up in a twister and taken from their home in Kansas and dropped down on top of the Wicked Witch of the East in the merry old land of Oz. And setting out on a wild adventure, Dorothy picks up some companions. You'll remember the scarecrow that had no brain, the cowardly lion, no courage, the tin man with no heart. And they make their way to the Emerald City to see the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. He can help them get back. After their quest to bring back the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West, there's that climactic scene in the movie when Toto begins to pull on the curtain, and lo and behold, it is revealed that the Wizard of Oz was nothing more than a traveling magician who happened to get stranded. He was no wizard at all. He built up an image of power and mystery, but behind the veil, he was just normal and ordinary. The curtain concealed his humanity, his ordinariness, his weakness. There was actually nothing special about him at all. And once they were able to see behind the curtain, the charade was up. The wizard wasn't very wizardly in the end. Today in our passage in Mark, we're going to see a different look behind a different kind of curtain with wildly different effects. And when the disciples of Jesus are privileged to see behind the curtain to Jesus' true identity, there's no letdown at all. You see, the curtain of Jesus' humanity has sheltered their eyes not from his weakness and frailty, but from the blinding glory of the holiness of Jesus. It is an intriguing and enlightening story for us from the life of our Lord. We're in Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 2 and read to verse 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. May he help us as we try to study it today. 
The first point we're going to look at this morning is a a look behind the curtain in those first couple verses. After six days, following the challenge from last week, the challenge when Jesus um, issued the cost of discipleship to to his followers, that in order to be a follower, you had to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Six days later, he takes the original big three, Peter, James, and John, and they go with him high on a mountain. Now, most scholars believe this was Mount Hermon, about 12 miles from Caesarea Philippi. And once again, as is the case in so many of our Bible heroes' stories, a mountain becomes the place of God's revelation. The Bible says that he was transfigured before them. That's a weird word, isn't it? The Greek word there is the same word used when we, we use the word metamorphosis. How we describe the way organic matter becomes rock or, or the way a tadpole becomes a frog or a caterpillar, a butterfly. The word indicates a radical change. But that is not to say that Jesus changed into a new form. In fact, the belief that Jesus sometimes is a human and sometimes is God and transfers between those forms is a long heresy that was condemned by the church a long time ago. Jesus was always both fully God and fully man. And it wasn't here on the mountain that he becomes something different. But instead, here on the mountain, he showed his disciples what was true of him, yet hidden from their sight. You see, the veil of humanity concealed Jesus' divinity. And in this moment before these three disciples, he pulls back the veil and allows them to see a glimpse of his true nature. And it was quite a moment. And as he was transfigured before them, the Bible tells us that his clothing was radiant and intensely white. So white that no one on earth could bleach it that white. It was in the parallel passages in Matthew and in Luke, even his face is radiant and is shining like the sun. The overwhelming presence of his divinity, the godness of it all, is demonstrated again in dazzling light. And that should not surprise us. You know, the psalmist says in 104 verse 2 that God wraps himself in light as a garment. When God is revealing himself, oftentimes he chooses to do it through the means of a blinding light. So here Jesus undergoes a transformation, as R.C. Sproul said, a metamorphosis. And suddenly the glory that had been hidden and veiled in the cloak of his humanity bursts forth, revealing the full deity of Christ to the watching disciples. But he's not alone. As Jesus is transfigured and they see him in his divinity and they see him in his glory and his face is shining and his clothes are bright white, he's not alone on the mountain and he's got two guests with him. Elijah and Moses are there, appearing with him. Okay, now this has taken a strange turn indeed. Elijah, the quintessential prophet of God, and Moses, the great lawgiver, are there with the glorified Jesus. The New American Commentary reminds us that both both Moses and Elijah are associated with high mountains. Moses with Mount Sinai, Elijah with Mount Horeb, Both men underwent transformations. Moses, when his face reflected the glory of God in Exodus 34, and Elijah, when he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire in 2 Kings chapter 2. So here the great forerunner and the great lawgiver, the liberator, are present bearing witness to Jesus in his revealed glory. Affirming. They're witnessing 
all of this as well. So we see the peak behind the veil. The second thing we see is a scramble to respond. Peter does what Peter does. He just starts talking. Gosh, I, I love Peter. He gives me such hope. He, he launches into nervous babbling. Yes, yes, teacher, this is good. Yeah, it's good that we're here. And you know what else would be good? I got an idea. Another thing that would be good is if we built some tents for you guys. Like, it would get you out of the sun. Uh, we could consider them memorial. Maybe, maybe people could come visit. We'll set up like a national park service. They could pay money and take a tram up here. He, he starts planning out the memorialization of the moment. Sounds like a great idea. Moses will go here. Elijah will go here. Jesus, you can stay right there. He didn't know what to say, so he just started talking. And verse 6 tells us the reason is because he was terrified. They were all ter terrified. We would be terrified too. And there's a, there's a reminder to me in that, that, something that we've hit a number of times here at Newtown Road in the past, that the divine encounters are, in our lives are often a mix of terror and glory, a combination of reverent awe and utter fear. It's a comforted fear, but it's still fear nonetheless. We have this sense of wonder at the glory and the bigness and the holiness of God. And at the same time, this crippling sense of uncertainty and anxiety about what it all means. A reminder of the, the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks outside the, the city of Bethlehem. And that night when Jesus was born, the angels appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And do you remember what it says next? And they were sore afraid. The combination of terror and glory is present again. Peter and James and John caught up in the glory of the moment and terrified. And there on the, on the mountain, something, something wild happened. A cloud overtakes them, overshadows them. And they are caught up and enveloped inside the cloud. And in the cloud, from within the cloud, they hear a voice. It's the voice of God the Father speaking again like he did at the baptism of Jesus. And this time he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter is interrupted by the voice of God the Father saying essentially, hey Peter, shut up. Hey Peter, your words aren't that important right now. Shh, be quiet. Listen to my son. And suddenly, in verse 8, they look around, and Moses and Elijah are gone. And only Jesus remains. What happened to them? Where did the lawgiver and the prophet go? I have some, th some thoughts on that for later, but for now, let's just settle in with this. Moses and Elijah are like Jewish royalty. And they are here with Jesus, in his glory, affirming and validating him. We would say bearing witness to his glory. And in a beautiful display, the great figurehead of the law, Moses, and the quintessential prophet, Elijah, both bear witness to Jesus' identity. And there's some really good stuff there for us. We'll get to that later. And the third thing we see, as we saw the, the, the peak behind the curtain, we see the, uh, just the, the nervous response that is a scrambling to figure out what to do. The third thing we see is confusion. Again, confusion. We are, they're still seeing like, like the blind man. They see trees walking, but they're not sure what it is. On the way down the mountain, Jesus tells them, hey guys, seriously, don't say anything about this. Well, well why not? Why? why couldn't they tell somebody about what they had just seen? 
Was it not important? Was the transfiguration not significant? Was it not a valuable encounter? Well, Well, of course it was. But yet again, these guys didn't quite understand what they had just seen. And if they run around talking about it to everyone who's going to listen, they're likely to get the reason of this, the the meaning behind it, all messed up. So guys, Jesus says, keep this on the down low until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And then, when it all makes sense, when they could connect all the dots, likely you can bring this up again and tell everyone what you saw. So they do. They keep it quiet. And they're still wondering... As they're heading down the mountain, still wondering what this whole rising from the dead might really mean. You see, the Jews believed wholeheartedly in a general resurrection from the dead for all the righteous at the end of the age. But this idea that the Messiah would be killed and rise from the dead in particular within the context of his ministry was a foreign concept, one that they struggled to understand. It gave them a bit of a problem as they sought to interpret Jesus' words. And let's be fair to these guys. They're trying to make it work. They're trying to put all the pieces together. They're trying to understand, even if they are making a mess of it. So they asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, what about the scribes? They say that Elijah must come. What's the meaning of Elijah's coming? And when is he going to arrive? And so the scribes and the teachers of the law are looking... For the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus says yes Elijah does come. Elijah is a forerunner. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. The Bible teaches also that the son of man whom Elijah announces must suffer and be rejected. And then Jesus says but I tell you Elijah has come. The prophecies concerning Elijah have been fulfilled. Elijah hasn't come to be reincarnated at the time of Jesus' life. But John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecies of Elijah's ministry. And he was rejected and endured great suffering. They killed him. They did to him whatever they pleased. And the implication is that they'll do the same to the Son of Man as well. So what? What are we to make of that? What does all of that mean for us today? Now, today's today's applications are, 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 some of them are kind of big picture, so I I hope you can hang with me here for a little bit. The first thing that we see is, is that Jesus is revealing a glimpse of his glory, and he is pulling back the curtain. But back to our opening illustration, unlike the great and powerful Oz, the peak behind the curtain today doesn't leave his disciples discouraged or disheartened because of his ordinariness and his weakness. You see, the veil of humanity doesn't conceal Jesus' normal and ordinary nature, but instead conceals for a time the glory and the majesty and the power of God. And when they see behind the veil, it overwhelms them. It terrifies them. When they are forced to stand in the presence of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, it drives them to terror and fear. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Bible tells us he is the exact imprint of God's nature. 
Paul told us that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Jesus has announced in the Gospels that he and the Father are one. And in this moment on the mountain with his three closest disciples, he takes that opportunity to help them see with their own eyes the reality of his divinity. And it leaves them terrified. His identity is clear. Jesus is divine. He is God in flesh. He and the Father are one. He is not just a normal man. And it seems like he is still answering, Mark is still answering that same question. What manner of man is this? Well, he's not a man at all. He's the God man. He is fully divine, concealed in humanity, but full of glory. The second thing we see is that Moses and Elijah are not inconsequential guests here. No, no, no. These guys pack a punch. Moses, the great lawgiver who led God's people out of bondage through the waters of the Red Sea, and Elijah, the prophet, are there to bear witness to Jesus' identity as divine. Because we be heard, we've heard before, haven't we? That the law and the prophets, all of the Bible, speak to Jesus' identity. And what the transfiguration shows us, if we're paying attention, is that the law and the prophets stand alongside the Son of God to affirm His glory. The law and the prophets, the foundation of Jewish life, don't, don't detract from Jesus' mission and identity. They actually support and reveal Jesus' mission and identity. They point us to His true nature. They show us who He is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then all of a sudden, they're gone. Elijah the prophet and Moses the lawgiver are gone. Why? Because Jesus has come and has not abolished the law and the prophets. He has not cast them aside and destroyed them, but instead he has come to fulfill them. Every jot and tittle of the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and every promise God made is yes in him. When the prophet and the lawgiver leave, it is a sign that Jesus has fulfilled both and he remains. It is all about him. And Mark is once again making that point very, very clear. And the third thing I want us to see is that the timeline in all this is really important. Very important. The Jews at the time of Christ are waiting for Elijah because in part Malachi 4, 4 through 6 tells them that. Let, let, me, let me read that passage to you. Remember Malachi who the final prophet before the 400 years of silence before Jesus burst onto the scene. Here's what he says at the close of his book. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember the law of Moses. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for keeping in mind the law of Moses and waiting for the appearance of Elijah. Do you think it's any coincidence? 
that Jesus points to the fulfillment of that prophecy. Not in the physical return of Elijah, but in the ministry of John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, announces his arrival, led the people of God into a baptism of repentance, and anointed Jesus at his baptism. In Matthew 17, 13, the disciples make the connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. And in Luke 1, 17, the angel who announced John's birth said that John would minister in the spirit of Elijah. John was mistreated and rejected, and the one who comes after him will be too. Jesus is again calling attention to his suffering and his death. Is the Bible not amazing and beautiful and powerful today? Jesus is the son of the living God. He is the firstborn of creation, the exact imprint of God's nature. And in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And when we beheld him, John said, we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus' identity is not concealed any longer. It is not hidden In his death, his burial, and resurrection, he once and for all is announcing his identity to all who will listen. He's the son of God. Come to seek and to save the lost. And the big question today is, what will you do with that Jesus? That is the question. Not the cultural Jesus. Not a European Jesus. Not a Jesus who sits on a rocking chair like a kind old grandfather bouncing children on his knee, looking the other way when we violate God's righteous standards. No, what do you do with the Son of God? The creator, the sustainer, the redeemer of life. What do you do with the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? What do you do with the Savior who's come to rescue, to seek, and save the lost? What do you do with that invitation to be his disciple? To deny yourself, repent, to take up your cross and to follow him. What do you do with that Jesus? My friends, the only reasonable response to the glorious and majestic Son of God, the only response that makes any sense is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him as a disciple. Have you followed Jesus? Have you made that determination today? Have you understood that by his grace he died on the cross to set you free from the law of sin and death, was buried and rose again to secure your victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave? And he ascended to heaven where he offers that invitation to you today. Have you trusted Jesus? Are you walking with him? Are you following him as a disciple? It is the only reasonable response. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God, for its power and its beauty and its majesty today. Thank you for the fulfillment of prophecy, for the fulfillment of types, and for the fulfillment of the law in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for the way the Bible all works together to show us this one coherent theme, that Jesus is the Son of God who's come to seek and to save the lost. Lord, thank you for revealing your plan to us that we don't have to grope around this world in the dark trying to find our way to you, but you are making a way for us. I pray for those who are listening today, God, that you would open their eyes to the reality of Jesus, that you'd let them peek behind the curtain for a moment and let them be awestruck with your wonder and your glory. Help them to see you for who you are and help them to do the only reasonable thing. Repent and believe and follow you. I pray that we would be a group of people here at Newtown Road 
who have wrestled with and embraced the identity of Jesus. And God, I pray that we would walk with you faithfully. Lord, I pray that we would show your glory to the world around us through our words, our deeds, our message, our growth in you, our, our obedience to you. God, thank you for these weeks of quarantine that we've been able to still re, uh, res resume teaching and, and study the Bible together. We pray for a quick end and we look forward to the day where we can meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Newtown Road, for joining with us. This may be the final Sunday of our recorded sermons. And so I hope to see you next Sunday, June 14th, here on the lawn for an outdoor service, weather permitting. And uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be able to get back to some normal meetings soon. Until then, stay connected to our Facebook feeds, our social media posts, our website. We will let you know as soon as we have firm plans for reopening. We are taking some small steps forward in these next couple weeks to get us ready for that day, and we cannot wait until we're able to gather together again. Until that time, stay rooted in the word, be patient in affliction, be constant in prayer, rejoice in hope. The word of God has not been bound by this quarantine, and in fact, God is multiplying our ministry here in the Capital District and around the world. Can't wait to see you again, Newtown Road. Love you guys. We'll catch you next time.